0: This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.
1: This is Kim Barnes on the Classic Car Show on America's Web Radio. Today's show, we've got two guests. We've got Rob, who's going to talk about trailering for the classic car enthusiast. And in the second part of our show, we've got Dave Lockard, who's got the finest Packard truck collection in the world. So uh, let's get started with uh, with Rob. Are you there, Rob? Uh,
2: yes, Kim. This is Rob.
1: Let's uh, let's start by I guess kind of uh, kind of the basics of uh, going through the basics of uh, trailering. It's spring. We've got a lot of listeners whose uh, trailers have probably been sitting over the winter. Uh, they want to get them out. They've got the first car, the first show on their calendar and they need to make sure that both the tow vehicle and the trailer are safe and ready to go. So what, uh, what advice do you have for them?
2: Well, you know, I would uh, certainly expect that there are some of the listeners that may never have trailered before. So I'd like to, to start off uh, very fundamentally uh, with uh, some of the do's and don'ts of trailering and selecting tow vehicles and trailers. Um, in our industry, and we'll call it light towing, um, you know, three, four, five thousand 5,000 pounds as far as the vehicle that's being towed, there are different types of trailers. Uh, there are tag-along trailers that will bolt up, let's say, to uh, uh, to a hitch assembly on the back of a passenger car or a pickup truck. And then there are, uh, a little bit more elaborate, a little more heavy duty, uh, fifth wheel hitches, which, which I'm sure many of you have seen, uh, where the hitch assembly is in the bed of a pickup truck or a specially prepared. Cabin chassis type truck which carries, usually they have dual rear wheels and have a, a pretty moderate uh, towing capability as far as gross vehicle weight. Uh, but I, uh, you know, to, to start off, uh, let's make the assumption that most of the listeners uh, who are car enthusiasts are going to have tag along or tow behind uh, trailers, uh, either single-axle or double-axle trailers. Uh, many of these trailers uh, have dual-axle brakes. Some dual-axle trailers have single-axle brakes. There are some single-axle trailers which, you know, may have a uh, – 7,000, uh, a, a 5,000 pound rating on a single axle. Uh, it makes it a little bit difficult to load a car uh, because of the, uh, the fulcrum effect with a single axle trailer. Uh, but there are trailers that are built and used by enthusiasts that uh, are single axle and they have no brakes. So, we need to talk about fundamental safety uh, when it comes to trailering, uh, and brakes are certainly an essential part of pulling your vehicle, uh, pulling a loaded trailer down the road. If you have or plan on buying a trailer with no brakes, uh, it may match the the weight of your vehicle and the the vehicle that you're going to put on the trailer but you need to make sure that under no circumstances with a single axle trailer that has no brakes the loaded trailer cannot exceed the unloaded weight of your tow vehicle so let's say you have a a 4,000 pound sedan that you have a, 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 receiver, a hitch receiver on and you're, you know, you have the hitch equipment to pull a trailer on a, let's say a Ford Crown Victoria. So, you have a single axle trailer, the trailer has no brakes, uh, you put a 2,500, let's say a 3,000 pound car on top of the trailer, the trailer weight alone may be 2,000 pounds. So, a 3,000-pound car on a 2,000-pound trailer matches, let's say, hypothetically, a 5,000-pound axle rate. Trailer and car, the load is matched. However, the Crown Victoria Unloaded weight would be forty-two hundred pounds. It's a very unsafe combination; should never be done. The loaded trailer with no brakes should never exceed the vehicle weight. Unloaded vehicle weight of the towing vehicle. So just uh, just kind of remember that when you are selecting a trailer. Or using a trailer that you already own or borrowing and, uh, you know, you don't want to be going down the road and have an unsafe condition. Not only that, chances are that you will be, you will be stopped by the, uh, the local police or the state police because they, in many cases, are very aware of what safe and unsafe towing practices are. So I just wanted to get that one out of the way because that is a a big no-no.
1: That's a good point, Rob, because I think people get hung up on uh, how strong their vehicle is. You know, uh, they look at the vehicle and my vehicle can pull uh, 2,000 pounds, 5,000 pounds, 10,000 pounds, and I'm sure it can. Uh, But what People tend not to think about is uh, can their vehicle stop that much weight, and particularly you know on the highways traffic's busy. Uh, can they stop that much weight quickly? So that uh, that's a good point. Thank you.
2: Well, and and that you you've made a you've made a good point there. Hey a vehicle may always be able to pull something, but can it stop something? And that is a rating that you will find on your car's door jamb or certainly in the owner's documents, owner's manual, or somewhere in the packaging that is applied to the, the car itself. And that would be called your gross combined vehicle weight. So in other words, that total weight, that's gross combined vehicle weight, should not exceed the total weight of your car loaded, gross vehicle weight, plus the weight of the trailer. It should never exceed that gross combined value. So, again, if if you are pulling a 3,000-pound car, and let's say in most cases people will have dual-axle trailers, in most states, a trailer, the dead weight of the trailer, and the vehicle that's being put on the car is going to exceed a 3,500-pound number. Uh, In most states, and I would say probably every state, but uh, certainly most states in the the Union (laughs) – Continental United States requires, uh, brakes on a trailer where the towing, c- towing weight is 3,500 pounds or greater. So 3,501 pounds, your trailer probably, it w- if it was built a number of years ago, may not have brakes. However, a properly engineered trailer built today would have brakes. A a dual-axle trailer may only have one set of brakes on one axle, but most dual-axle trailers do have brakes on both axles for very efficient stopping. Um, Many of the trailers that are available today have Surge brakes, which are, which, uh, it, it is a hydraulic brake system, typical of what you have on your car. However, the hitch assembly is a master cylinder, and it slides forward and backward. Depending on what, whether you're accelerating, it's unloaded. When you decel, when the towing vehicle decelerates, it pushes back on the hitch, which just like applying the brake, in your car and it applies brake pressure to the appropriate wheels again meaning whether or not your car, your trailer is engineered for dual axle brakes or single whatever the axle the axles with the brakes will be applied when you when you stop your towing vehicle uh, the second type of trailer brake system is an electric brake system, which requires a brake controller to be installed in your tow vehicle, or most pickup trucks today have an integrated electric brake controller. Uh, As you apply the brakes electrically, there is a signal sent back to your electrical connector at your hitch, and that applies an appropriate amount of braking to your braking axles on the trailer. So uh, either way, uh, brakes uh, are necessary for safe travel when you're towing a vehicle. Um Towing a vehicle uh, down across the highway uh, is in the wrong hands, um, you know, a, a serious, uh, it, it's almost a weapon uh, that you need to be able to control. So the driver needs to be, needs to have presence of mind as to what he's doing when he's traveling with a trailer, needs to be conscious of his surroundings be thinking well in advance of the area immediately in front of his car. You should be looking a quarter of a mile down the road, certainly through several windshields. If there are people in front of you, you should be you should be looking well down the road to see what activities might be affecting your, your travel.
1: That's so good. The, good advice, Rob. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll need to take, uh, take a little break here. But uh, Rob and I will be back in just a minute with uh, more advice on uh, selecting a trailer and getting your trailer ready for this car show season. This is Kim on the Classic Car Show on America's Web Radio.
0: Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. You can rest assured, knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org. Or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today.
3: Hi, this is Steve Ronaldo, host of the Classic Car Show on America's Web Radio. Uh, just talking to you about antique car insurance. I think that uh, if you're looking for the best coverage for your classic car, consider J.C. Taylor Insurance. They've been our my insurer for years in this hobby and have... The top rating of every, all of the insurance companies in the hobby. When you get ready for insurance, call J.C. Taylor or visit jctaylor.com on the Internet.
0: This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.
1: Welcome back to America's Web Radio, the classic car show. This is Kim, and our guest today is Rob. We're talking about uh, safe trailering for your classic car and uh, we're going to continue with uh, our checklist of getting your tow vehicle and your trailer ready for the spring car show season.
2: Go ahead, Rob. Uh, well, uh, you know, springtime is a time when uh, we all want to get, uh, get the cars loaded and, uh, and get them down to the, uh, the concourse or the, uh, the, the car show, and in many cases we're doing a lot of uh, um, interstate driving. Uh, so we need to make sure that uh, the trailer that you're using uh, is, is uh, up to the level of safety that it was originally engineered for. So let's start with the, uh, with the hitch assembly. And uh, we need to make sure that the coupler on the trailer tongue is rated for the load that you're going to be putting on the trailer and that it's in good working condition. Uh, You always need to make sure when it's latched onto the ball, uh, whether or not it's an inch and seven-eighths, two-inch, or two-and-five-sixteenths ball, which should be appropriately sized ball and coupler, uh, that you do have a safety lock or a pin or even a bolt to go through the coupler assembly to make sure that it doesn't come undone. Uh, you also will have safety chains. Make sure the safety chains are in good order. Uh, and the S-hooks uh, on the ends of the chains have a keeper in some way, shape, or form. So if the tow vehicle hits a bump or if something would happen to, to jostle the chains, uh, the S-hook won't unhook itself from the tow vehicle also it's good practice to cross your chains from the trailer to your receiver on the tow vehicle which then will not stress or uh, exceed the length of the chain coming from the trailer and if you if you think about this uh you'll be it'll it'll begin to make sense but if you cross your chains coming from the trailer to the hitch uh that is uh the ideal way to uh safely uh secure your trailer with uh with chains um, your electrical connectors make sure your electrical connectors are in good order uh clean the contacts both on your tow vehicle and on your trailer. Make sure they match up properly, nothing is damaged, the wires are not chafed. And uh, when you do make that connection, make sure you have someone that is behind the trailer and go exercise all of the features of the, uh, of the car. So in other words, you're gonna use your emergency flashers, you're gonna do your left turn, your right turn, your running lights brakes, etc. So you want to make sure all that's working. If your trailer is equipped with electric brakes, you're going to want to test that by uh, using the the lever that is on the brake controller and just drift your car two or three miles an hour and exercise your brake controller, and you should be able to feel some drag come uh from the trailer to basically slow your car. If you're doing 30 miles an hour, maybe the trailer will not be able to do that if it's not adjusted properly. Uh, you may end up skidding the wheels or it just is going to feel like a light drag. They're obviously from the brake controller manufacturers you have set up requirements and instructions. So you want to pull those back out and uh, make sure that the Trailer brakes are operating properly. Uh, Next thing I look at um, would be the condition of my tires. Uh, Tires just sitting dormantly, um, exposed to ultraviolet and exposed to other elements in our atmosphere, will begin. The rubber will begin to break down. So you will notice on a tire that can be as recent as two or three years old. Will start to show some signs of checking in the sidewall, uh, or in between the tread. So check, you know, make sure you take a look at that. And, uh, if you're finding that you do have some checking, and certainly if you see any cord, uh, tires need to be replaced. I, I, anytime I have any checking with any of the tires that I've had on my trailers, and certainly anyone that, uh, I have advised, uh, you know, we do end up with checking, uh, the, the, tri- the tires need to go and they need to be replaced. And replace the tires with an appropriately weight rated tire. Have to be very careful with some of the uh, imported tires from today. Um, rubber compounds are not ideal. They're not, uh, uh, the tires that, uh, are made in, in America. Uh, or even in North America, Canada, or Mexico. And I'm talking about tires that come over, uh, board ship, uh, across the Pacific. So, uh, be careful with, uh, buying, uh, buying those tires. Uh, they, uh, they do not meet, uh, in my opinion, all of the requirements of the, of the OEM tire that the trailer was engineered for. Um, Next thing would be bearings. Uh, I would recommend that every year you jack up the trailer, get the wheels suspended, and feel any lateral movement, side-to-side movement. Spin the tires. See if you spin the tires' wheels. Uh, see if you hear any anything unusual. It should be a nice, smooth action as the tire is rotating. Uh, most many, tri- tri- many trailers today have what we call buddy bearings. There's a Zerk fitting on the end of the hub. Make sure that you use an appropriate wheel bearing grease and uh, load those bearing assemblies up when you pull the bearing cap off. Load those up so you see the actual spring-loaded uh, disc inside begin to move toward the outside of the hub. That means you do have adequate grease on the hub side of that disc. And uh, at that point, you have adequate grease, adequate lubrication. But if you do feel any lateral movement, you may want to take that to a service center and have uh, the bearings checked. And it could be a preload situation, but it could be that you're having some preliminary bearing failure. So uh, you don't want to have that when you have your... uh, your precious cargo on the back of the trailer. Um, we've talked about lights. Make sure everything is operational. Make sure there isn't anything that's, that's chafing or uh, abraded underneath the trailer from a suspension standpoint or a wiring standpoint or if you do have surge brakes from a hydraulic standpoint. Uh, all of your D-rings, your tie down points should be, the weld should be, should be, uh, uh, crack free, no fractures should be in good order, and make sure that your tie down straps are appropriately rated for whatever it is you're you're tying down to your trailer. Uh, I would always suggest that um, axle straps be used, and try not to, to jury rig anything over to over your axle or to secure your car using. Uh, components that are not engineered for car or tow- car vehicle towing. Um, I always use a tie-down that has a keeper. So in other words, just like the chains on the tongue of your trailer, uh, something that's going to keep the hook on the tie-down uh, in place If, for some reason, the tie-down would loosen up and the axle strap then would break loose, now you have uh, one point uh, of four points, at least, where you're tying down a vehicle that may come loose. That will start the car to be able to laterally or longitudinally move around. It's going to affect the stability and the security of the car on the trailer. Um, Next, I would take a, a good look at your tow vehicle uh, to ensure that there isn't anything that has um, gone awry with your receiver, the way it's attached, bolted, or welded to the frame of your tow vehicle. Uh, let's face it, most tow vehicles are subjected to um, SALT, uh, abrasion, uh, accidents. And we need to make sure that everything from the receiver, from the frame on the truck to the receiver, all the way back to to include the trailer, uh, are going to be going for the complete ride. Don't want anything breaking loose as you're driving across the interstate. Uh, it's a harrowing experience to have a tire blowout, let alone uh, a hitch assembly come off, and now the safety chains are the only thing that are keeping the trailer attached to the car. Uh, that uh, takes, again, presence of mind and good driver control. Um, I'd like to talk now just a, a quick uh, recap of the things that you need to do when mm-hmm. you decide to go out uh, on that that first trip, and
1: uh, that's great, Roger. We've got, uh, got a minute, uh, about a minute and a half left of uh, the okay. first half of our show, so that's uh, a perfect time to get out, give everybody kind of a final checklist.
2: Okay, this uh, the recap that I would like you to leave the show with would be to make sure that the. Trailer is loaded properly. 60% of your total weight that's going to be in the trailer, on the trailer, should be in front of the axles or in front of the center point of the trailer. So you want the front of the trailer, the tongue side of the trailer, to be loaded 60%, 40% on the back side. Um, make sure your hitch assembly, everything that we just talked about, the hitch assembly is secure uh, and uh I always index, when I say that, I put a paint mark on all the threads that might you know, get loose or begin to back off. That way you can always tell at a glance whether or not the hitch ball, which is threaded by a nut, if any of that has begun to come loose. Uh, next, make sure that uh, lights and brakes are fully operational. Check your tire pressure. Make sure your pressures are in the car, your tow vehicle. Make sure they are at the rated uh, value that's identified on your door pillar. Uh, the trailer should be at the pressure that's recommended on the trailer tires to give you the load rating that you need. Uh, keep in mind when driving down the road...
1: We're just about out of time, but uh, we uh like to thank Rob for giving us trailer tips today on the Classic Car Show on America's Web Radio, and uh, please please hang on, stay with us. I know you're going to love Dave Lockhart uh, with an incredible amount of information um, about Packard Trucks. This is Kim on America's Classic Car Show.
4: and proof of what is right find out more at www.usjf.net support usjf as they support you the disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge not just for the person suffering its effects but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp what should be the course of treatment who is the best person to render treatment And the trained staff at EHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.atlantahealingcenter.com.
0: This is America's webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.
1: Hi, this is Kim from Cars with Kim. Thanks for listening on America's Web Radio. Uh, today we're going to go back in time a little bit and uh, talk about Packard trucks. Until recently, I didn't even know Packard made a truck. Uh, when I think of Packard, I think of uh, one of the one of them being one of the three threes: Packard, Peerless, and Pierce Arrow, or what the what that means to me. And they're beautiful luxury vehicles uh, from the early 1900s that I see as I visit concours around the country. But uh, it turns out that the truck business was uh, very profitable for Packard and uh, occurred from 1905 to 1923. They made 40,000 trucks. And we're very lucky to have Dave here to tell us uh, a lot more about Packard trucks and some of his adventures in them. Dave, are you there?
5: Yes, I am. Hi, Kim.
1: Hi, Dave. Why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and what's in your collection, and then uh, and kind of educate us on Packard trucks?
5: Okay. Well, I uh, when I was born, I was very young. No, I'll quit the comedy. I worked um, in the '60s and, and for a large restaurant outside of Philadelphia, and I was truly blessed because the fellow that had started this restaurant had purchased a stagecoach stop and had turned it into a hotel and restaurant, and he had been a cook behind a horse-drawn wagon in the First World War. It was known as the Great War back then. Uh, The gentleman was an Italian immigrant by the name of Joseph Conti, and in uh, 1919, he was retained over in France after the uh, cessation of hostilities, and when President Woodrow Wilson came over to sign the armistice, uh, Joseph Connie and the chauffeur for Woodrow Wilson went out into the French countryside and scoured up a meal, and it was chicken and potatoes and whatever, but apparently he could turn Army food into real edible stuff. So the meal that he prepared for Woodrow Wilson was was served to Wilson, and the president was apparently so impressed that he came into the kitchen and he gave Joseph Conti a signed picture of himself. And when Joe had related this story to me back in the 60s, I said, what did you do with that picture? He said, I tore it up. He said, I thought he'd give me some money. He did no give me no money. He'd give me a picture. I know what no picture. And I commented to him that that was actually... Pretty stupid, but I was very blessed to have known several World War One veterans, and my 1920 Packard was bought back in the 30s by a gentleman by the name of Ralph Gary, whose father started Glen Gary Brick Company, and Ralph's brother Edward was killed on November 6th, right before uh, the cessation of hostilities on uh, November 11th, 1918 and he had purchased the truck in memory of his brother. Um, My next-door neighbor growing up was a volunteer to the Free French Army as an ambulance driver in 1916. And since we didn't get involved in the war until 1917, that was a fairly heroic thing to do. I guess having known these folks um, over time, I stumbled across a Packard truck in 1979 that was owned by Ralph Gary, purchased the truck, and worked with uh, Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company in the early 80s as they had a uh, Packard Wingfoot Express truck that they were trying to sell their air-filled tires with in 1917. At this time, trucks rode on solid tires, cars were on air-filled pneumatic tires, but the trucks had a tendency to crush or destroy any air-filled tires. At any rate, Goodyear was recreating, in the early 80s, their Wingfoot Express, and I had purchased two-part trucks, and that's the only way you get Packard truck parts, and um, had purchased these trucks with extra engines, and I had made a deal with Goodyear that I gave them an engine and a worm drive rear end, and in exchange they rebuilt the engine on my truck, and I got it back. Um, it took a couple of years, but finally that's how I got my first Packard in 1920 running. Um, in after that period, I, I really wanted to do my truck as a World War I, but found out that because it had air-filled tires and cast wheels all the way around, which were made by Motor Wheel Company, found out that option only began in 1920. And all of the trucks that the army had were on solid tires with wooden spoked wheels. was able to, um, I guess assemble enough parts to build a World War I Packard Army truck, which took a period of 14 years, and got a frame and a wheel wheels from Calgary, Alberta, and an engine from New York and a headlight from California. so, it was really quite a uh, quite a process to get all the parts together and the army truck is a three-ton vehicle and uh... have a biggest problem i have is hauling it because i didn't have any trailer truck big enough and fortunately friends have trucks and trailers that can haul this Um, and the whole process is a very protracted period of time. Um, The trucks were sold with options such as an electric starter. Uh, At my age, I'm 69, I have chosen not to hand crank vehicles and was lucky to find a gentleman in North Carolina that custom-made electric starters for all three of my trucks and uh, installed them and was also lucky to find a number of craftsmen. Who volunteered their time, we found a World War I um, Packard, uh, I'm sorry, World War One three-ton class B Army truck body plans uh, from the U.S. War Department from all places over in England where a lot of the equipment was left after the war from a fellow that has uh, several U.S.-made trucks in his possession. So I was able to find the exact plans. Um, I did omit some things, like the two pounds of white lead in the paint, but uh, also was lucky enough to get the shop drawings for the, the wooden body. And um, a fellow out down in Gettysburg, uh, a woodworker, master woodworker, made the body and made the bows. And there's um, six bows for the truck. Each one is made out of uh, five layers of steam bent yellow pine. Um, the irony is, it's the first time he'd ever steam bent wood, and he donated all his labor to this project. Uh, a company out near Carlisle and Walnut Bottom, Fail Awning Company, uh, donated the canvas for it and uh, custom sewn it up. And I've been lucky to have the truck in the um, memorial day parade in washington dc in 2014 and 2015 and i plan to have it in the parade in 2016 i'm a volunteer to the world war one centennial commission out of washington dc it's a, a congress authorized um,
1: that's uh, that's incredible so if our listeners wanted to see a photo of that truck, uh, is it online somewhere?
5: It is online. Uh, trust me, I'm not a computer person as such. And if they just type in, go to Google and type in uh, World War One Packard Army Truck, a picture will come up because there's. I've been interviewed by Hemmings and a couple of the other magazines for whatever and had it over at Hershey last year. For the Hershey car show, and we had a fair amount of attention there. I have a Absolutely. War, I have a World War One doughboy uniform. Unfortunately, I look more like the Pillsbury doughboy in the <laughs> uniform. However, i tried trying to keep with some of the you know the spirit of of the vehicle, and I, I've been able to be an interpreter at the arm uh, at the Army Heritage Education Center in Carlisle at the trenches to describe a little bit of what the horrific conditions of World War I, which changed so many things with the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, the Russian Revolution, and so many things that are affecting us today pivoted on that how, time period.
1: How many um, Packard trucks uh, of this style that were uh, actually in World War I uh, do you think are on the road today?
5: Um, I, I, my guess is there's probably, well, I'm sure uh, less than a, I know less, well, less than a hundred of the World War One restored. I just I helped a fellow recently in Belgrade, Serbia, with a truck that was left there after World War One, and um, <clears throat> I I only know of these mine and that gentleman in Belgrade that has the Packard truck that are actually has army trucks. But they were used in a wide variety, everything from logging to, to um, bakeries to breweries. They're very popular in Detroit as a brewery delivery truck. And, um, and 1911 was that first cross country trip with the Packard truck. That was two years before the Lincoln Highway, also known as Route 30, which took 46 and a half days from New York to San Francisco, top speed of eight count them eight miles per hour and in, wow. Wyoming, in Wyoming alone they destroyed 39 of 45 bridges they went over because they had to carry beams with them and there were bridge crossing strategies beat the brake get on out underneath put beams up to support it or just go down through the creek so they, they had a, a fascinating trip and, uh, and,
1: and just, is it? I've heard that uh, one of the things about Packard and their truck line is that they established service centers all across the country. So it actually made cross-country transport a practical thing to do. Um, whereas some of the other truck companies, um, you know, if you broke down or needed parts as you were crossing the country, they might be impossible to get.
5: Well, there's a little bit of irony there because the the Lincoln Highway Association. The first president of the Lincoln Highway Association, although Carl Fisher was the main impetus behind it, was a fellow by the name of Henry Joy, and Henry Joy just happened to also be the president of the Packard Motor Car Company. So there was um, some early on advantage to Packard that got their feet in the door that they realized that the more roads there are to travel, the more vehicles they could sell, be they trucks or cars or whatever, and in 1915, they sold more trucks than they sold cars because the trucks were needed over in Europe with the Allies because we hadn't been involved yet in in World War One. So they just were make, making as many as they could, and that was the boom time for the Packard Motor Car Company to be making trucks. And um, what
1: was uh, what was truck production in a calendar year versus car production? Do you know?
5: Um, I I have those figures, but I only have them by way of serial numbers, so and so, to so and so, and I've never, I I just live with the figure of forty thousand over time, but I I'd wager they were probably six to ten thousand during the periods of World War World War One when they were just just more in demand. In, in the first World War, one hundred and fifty thousand trucks were ordered, and only fifty thousand made it over, because. The infrastructure we had no clue going into World War One, and Packard ended up in December of 1917 driving their trucks from Detroit to the piers in Baltimore, um, which would take them three, four, five, ten days depending on the weather. But the railroads were nationalized, and they couldn't ship by railroads, and the only other choice was to drive them. So wow, Packard. That's a- it, it It's a story unto itself.
1: that's uh, that's incredible. Well Dave, we're gonna to go to uh, gonna take a break and uh, we'll be back with uh, Dave Locker to talk a little bit more about packer uh, trucks. So hang on.
0: This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. This is Kim
1: with Cars with Kim, and we are back with Dave Lockard talking about Packard trucks. Um, Dave's filled us in on some amazing history and the Packard trucks' role in World War One, and uh, he's going to talk a little bit about what it's actually like to drive one of these trucks and how they compared to say what Ford was selling uh, at the same time. So, uh, Dave, take it away.
5: Thanks, Kim. Uh, Driving a Packard truck is an experience probably unlike any other driving experience. First of all, the the truck has mechanical brakes, and that's a series of levers that basically are supposed to slow the truck down. Um, Seventy percent of a vehicle's brakes are on the front wheels the Packard trucks had no front brakes. And basically when you push the brake pedal in, it was a clamp on the drive shaft. It did a lot of things, mainly heart palpitations and sweat beads and things like that, didn't stop the truck. And the emergency brake was on uh, the, the rear wheels on the drums. So it was actually reversed, and the um, it would have been a far better emergency brake, just to have it on the drive shaft, being able to stop the truck with the drums, but they reversed it. The Packard trucks up until probably 1915, top speeds were, uh, for your large trucks, maybe 11 miles per hour. My 1918 three-ton will do 17 miles per hour. I have a 1919 that's rated at 16 miles an hour in fourth gear. And my 1920, which will do 30 miles an hour, is because it has cast wheels and uh, pneumatic tires, which are 38 by 7, which is 38 inches high, 7 inches wide on a 24-inch wheel. The thrill of driving a Packard truck is probably best described when I was in the Memorial Day Parade in Washington the last two years, because there are no brake lights, there's no running lights, there's no turn signals. Uh, the electric starter that a friend of mine made really came in handy, but to drive something like that uh, required us uh, an escort in the front and rear. There's no brake lights and spotters on the, uh, to watch either side for cars coming up uh, because basically Washington, D.C. is not a good place to be driving a, a, <laughs> a Packard truck. The, uh, the concept of driving one, it's both hands on the wheel all the time. There's no one-hand driving, and it, it's really a, a challenge to be uh, constantly fully aware of, of a 360 surroundings uh, with driving such a vehicle. It's perfect for parades because of the low speeds. You leave it in granny, granny gear, which is like first gear, And many of the modern cars that might be in a parade, for example, are overheating. This truck is just used to going slow. They would put trailers behind some of them. I have a great uh, picture of a a logging operation with about six trailers behind uh, a Packard truck. However, each trailer had to have a person on that trailer working the brake for it because there was mechanical brakes only, either that or go extremely slow and hope that you don't pop out of gear because once you got in neutral, you couldn't stop that truck. Uh, my wife has asked me if I could have a hobby of like stamp collecting, but it's really there's a, a, just a thrill to be driving something like that and having something of that nature come back to life just to partially experience what the introduction of trucking was to um, to this country. As compared to a, a modern vehicle, there's absolutely none because the similarities would be maybe a straight axle in the front and four tires and everything else else has changed with uh, things like uh, kerosene lights, um, options was acetylene lights, and finally in 1915 electric lights were an option and electric starter which cost uh, $200 additional, which...
1: That was a lot of money back then.
5: A terrible pile of money. And um, what you don't go to Napa and buy parts. Basically, if you find a parts truck, you try and bring it home or be friends with people that have parts trucks and you network and swap out parts. And that's worked out extremely well for me
1: the engine in the packer trucks uh is there any kind of a crossover between the engines in the
5: uh cars no in in the early years 1903 through probably 1906 1907 they did use car engines but the uh the truck engine was four-cylinder and it was developed entirely independent from the cars and uh had traditionally about 32 to 36 Uh, brake horsepower with a worm drive rear end. In 1914, Packard in the end of 1915 did away with chain drive and they went to a worm drive rear end Uh, whereas other companies like Mack and Sterling had chain drive trucks through the 30s and Sterling up through, I think, 1951 and it was um, an enclosed drive system which was very reliable and uh, but it was worm drive, which kept it at very low
1: speed yeah. now who were packard 's main competitors if you were if you needed a, a transport truck and you well, would consider Packard, you would consider Kenworth, maybe
5: well uh, part of the demise for for the truck was that after World War one there was a, a recession there were the, there 's two different kinds of trucks one is a manufactured truck and another is an assembled truck and Packard built all of the major components for their trucks. They would purchase like headlamps and things like that. But there were companies that would uh, make their own frame, buy a Buddha engine uh, and maybe Spicer for the drive shaft and uh, Board One or whoever made transmissions and just buy the components and build a truck. Whereas Packard had their all of their own costs for the castings and the forgings and the machining. And those, those types of trucks could be produced cheaper. However, the, the Packard had like a six inch, for like the ton and a half auto, it was a six inch channel iron. And on the side of the frames of my truck, it's Carnegie. So they actually were Carnegie steel. And they're fully gusted um, front and rear with cross members. And the, there's virtually no frame flex whatsoever. They, they were overbuilt. If you had a ton-and-a-half truck, it wasn't uncommon to put three, four, five tons on it that it, it wow. could handle. The problem is you couldn't stop it. You could get it going, but uh, as I said, you get into fourth gear and it starts playing near my God today because you're not going to stop it, and especially downhill.
1: Now, how many trucks did Packard build for the government, um, and how many actually ended up being used in the war?
5: Well, uh, I, I have information that Packard built 10,000, so one quarter of their trucks went to the military. I mean, prior to that, we had been supplying France, England, Finland uh, with Packard trucks before we were involved in the war. Um, but their, their biggest sales year was 1915, where they actually made more trucks than cars. And uh, I would say the bulk of, of their truck manufacturing at least 40% was during the war years uh, afterwards with the, with the recession and all the competition. But for World War One, the government had ordered 150,000, and at best, 55,000 trucks made it overseas because we weren't ready for World War One. And Packard ended up in December of 1917 driving their trucks from the factory in Detroit down to Camp Holabird, Uh, which is Baltimore, for the piers, because the railroads were just so clogged up. And uh, that was a truly miserable trip. In the dead of winter, and I have pictures where there's snow a foot and a half deep, and they had the strap chains on them. And there's no windshields on these trucks. That was unheard of. There's no heater. So when you hear truck drivers complain, they don't know what it's like to be a truck driver.
1: (laughs) So Packard ended up, the war ended. And Packard had a surplus of unsold trucks, I guess. Right, and, uh, and
5: which I don't have full documentation, but in the 1923, I understand that most of the activity was just selling inventory, and they went on to concentrate on luxury cars, and especially the the 12-cylinder um, Packard, which um, Stalin, for instance, had Packard cars. Emperor Hirohito, he had Packard. Cars during in World War II, Um, they were the the elite type of vehicle to have, along with your Cadillacs and your other cars. And example, Packard made the PT boat engines. There were three 1,200 horsepower Packard engines on the PT boat, which was called the Mosquito Navy after our um, battleships were destroyed at Pearl Harbor, and they. Packard also built, under license from Rolls-Royce, the Merlin engine, uh, Packard Merlin, which uh, initially Ford turned down, and Packard accepted the contract and converted all of the Whitworth threads of the Rolls-Royce British-built engine into SAE and ended up with 39 patent improvements on that engine that powered the P-51 Mustang, which were the first planes, to escort our bombers all the way over to Germany and back, because before they didn't have the range, and were a superior fighter, the FW-190, uh, which came often to intercept our bombers. So, so it's a rich history. It had a sad ending, but this is just a little bit of a Americana that I try and keep active, and people just stand back and say, "Wow, is that what they look like?" And I say, "About as close as you're going to get." So I thoroughly enjoy yeah. it, and having known people from the era just makes it more of a historical thing that I can deeply appreciate.
1: It's uh, it's so important to keep uh, keep things like that alive as we uh, as we lose a little bit of our history every year. Um, we've got about a, a minute left. Um, I know that uh, you've piqued the curiosity of a lot of our audience, and you mentioned that they could Google World War One Packard Army Truck. See your truck. Um, I believe you'll also be at the uh, AACA Hershey Show on October ninth, and uh, dressed up in your gear. And right. we hope that uh, some of our listeners will be there and uh, look you up and come and see the truck. So Absolute,
5: absolutely, absolutely, it's it's um, on our American heritage, and I'm, as a Navy veteran, I I truly. Uh, Feel as a patriot that we need to recognize all that gets done for our country.
1: Absolutely, we uh, we appreciate uh, appreciate your service and can't thank you enough for being on the show today and enlightening us on not only Packard trucks but uh, some American history and the history of Packard. So, uh, Dave Lockard, thank you very much for joining me on Cars with Kim on America's Web Radio.
5: Thank you, Kim. Bye bye.
1: Bye bye.
0: This is America's com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.